If you are between the ages of four to eight, you are excused to kids' club. We are four weeks in on a series that I've entitled Deception, Design and Deception. Considering God's design and Satan's deception as we enter a lot of the cultural issues of our time. It's important for us to recap a little uh, for those who have not been around through all of them. In the first week, we wanted to establish God's great design. Now, Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and it's the first verse in our Bible, but also the beginning of our worldview. Because very quickly it establishes that there's something very, very bigger and truer about him than me. That he is the creator, that I am just a creature. That he is to be worshipped and I am to worship. And that he is the king and I am not. We discussed how God created man, gave us purpose, relationship, and boundaries. And then set us free. Set us free to make decisions. And really quickly, in week two, we watched how the great deception started. Immediately, Satan slithers into the scene and begins to plant seeds of doubt, saying this, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And Satan begins to twist the word of God. And the seed of doubt starts to grow, and it grows and grows into temptation, and ultimately into sin. You see how this little innocent question can leave you questioning everything. And it moves the focus away from someone who's bigger, from someone who's mightier, from someone who's holier, and someone who's righter, and makes the focus me. What I want, what I need, what I think I deserve, I make the narrative all about me. It becomes about my purpose, not his, my desires, not his, the boundaries I want or will pick, and not the ones he would give me. And slowly, 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 his words get twisted, our view of him gets twisted, his character gets twisted, how we see him gets twisted, and we no longer ascribe to the God of the Bible. It's been Satan's desire from the beginning. We walked into that in our three week, two weeks ago, and we considered the idea of life, and we really wanted to establish that life is sacred and that was given to us by the king and as such it's not ours to take and last week we had the great privilege of hearing from one of my good friends rob swears from the new life center taught us about the least of these reminding us the heart of the gospel and giving us a bigger picture of community so before we jump into this week's passages i want to give you the caveat i'm going to give you before we jump in every week That as our desire to walk through this series is to rightly establish God's word as truth. It's to rightly establish his word as truth. And hopefully in doing so, we'll open the eyes of our hearts so we'll be enlightened to his word. See, we live in a day and a time where it's not just the world that denies God's word. Often it's the churches. Often it's pastors. It happens, it's prevalent everywhere, so we're trying to sit down, hone ourselves on God's word, and in doing so, we're not mincing words on sin. And as such, it is now your job as the church to hear God's word and to apply it to your life. To rightly do that, you need not look around. 
you need not apply it to others. You don't have to worry about how this affects other people. You need to deal with God's word and your life. It is our desire in doing that to give us a biblical framework to see the current times of our culture. This is not a Facebook conversation. This is a church where we get to be open and honest about what God's word says. We're not trying to reach out to anybody right now. We're establishing truth because we think that is what is necessary for us to hear. And because of that, we're trying to give you this framework. And I got to say this about 14 more times. My job is not to give you silver bullet arguments. There aren't any. Our job is to know the creator of the universe, to know the standard he set for us, and ultimately know the grace that was provided for him by his son. So let me pray for us and we'll dig in this morning. Great God in heaven, we are thankful that you are our God and we can be your people. You're the king, we're the servants. You are to be worshipped and we are to worship you. Father, you are on a plane so far, so high above us that it's not ours to dictate what's right. God, our holiness means that we're set apart. Your holiness is entirely different because you are not set apart. You are the thing from which everything else is set apart from. Father, may we attain that kind of holiness in our lives. May we know the standard that you have for us May we ascribe to your views. And Father, may we live with the grace that you've given us. Bind Satan from this place that we would really hear your word and open the eyes of our hearts that we would know it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, this week we're walking into another issue. And we're going to dig into the idea of identity. Now, on surface level, you're going to think about that. You're not going to know exactly how this pertains to where we've been headed. But I'll step into it really fast and tell you there's not a more pervasive issue in our culture right now amongst Christians than identity. We want to know what we're defined by. We want to know what we stand for. We want to know whether we have value We want to know whether we have significance. And so in our quest for that, we decide labels that we're okay calling ourselves, labels we're not okay calling ourselves, and we push on this huge quest for identity. Now, as we press into some of this, I want you to know straight up that a lot of these weeks, you're not going to feel pressed in on much. A lot of these weeks, we're going to establish some truth that may or may not make you feel uncomfortable This week, better. In fact, I've prayed all week that I'd get to stand here and poke each of you in the eye thoroughly. Because this issue is huge in the church. It's huge in your life, and it's huge in mine. Who is Jesus? And who am I? And what will I be defined by in my life? And that's the question we've got to wrestle with, and that's the question we'll dig in on this morning. So if you turn with me to Philippians 3, there are lots of places we could go. We're going to dig in here. 
Philippians 3, verse 1 says this. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. So jumping into the middle of this book, Paul says finally, and by saying finally, he's not meaning I'm, I'm drawing a conclusion, but rather I'm starting an argument for you. Finally, we're getting to something I've been wanting to say to you. Rejoice in the Lord. Immediately, he starts to draw this distinction. Rejoice. Have joy, but your joy, your rejoicing, is based on God. It's based on the Lord. It's based on who he is, his heart, his character, his standards, what he has for you. See, your rejoicing is not in you. He starts off real quick by saying rejoice in the Lord. You'll find this as a command throughout the scriptures in the New Testament. Rejoice in the Lord. I say it again, rejoice. He'll say a couple of chapters later. Make your joy the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Paul's saying, I'm reminding you of truth. This is an easy thing for me to do for you, and it's really good for you to hear. So what's truth? Verse 2 says, look out for dogs. Look out for evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So what does that mean? In this context, Paul is warning the believers at Philippi to watch out for a particular group of people, probably called the Judaizers. These people who were misrepresenting the gospel, this group of people, by the way, who caused the entire book of Galatians to get written. This group of people who were pointing out at all these other things and standards that you could live by, these other things that could define you that weren't Jesus. So Paul says, look out. Look out for the dogs. A reference to someone who's unclean or an unbeliever. Saying these people who are asking you to compare your life to something else don't know Jesus. Look out for the evildoers. And he calls them evildoers because like Satan from the very beginning, they're calling you astray. Beware of the flesh mutilators. And he gets more to the point here, saying that they're calling you to a false circumcision. So why a stringent warning? Paul was watching people, watching his people, watching the church, these very people he'd loved, poured his life into. He was watching them be defined by other things, something is so, so very vast in our culture. And he takes it head on. And he takes it head on because he knows design and he knows deception. And he wants to push this into the Philippians. Verse 3, for we are the circumcision. And immediately he draws this distinction. And this distinction is huge. We are the circumcision. Meaning that there's clearly something that we're not. Now at this point, there are several of you that are super giddy that I've said circumcision about five times. And inevitably, there's a couple of dozen who'd like me to stop. But why circumcision? Did it again. I got about seven more coming, by the way. 
In the Old Testament, circumcision was given by God as a sign of covenant relationship with God. God declared, if you want to be right with me, you will be circumcised. So here Paul claims that we, that he and the believers in Jesus Christ, that the ones who are rightly related to God, and he starts to draw a little different distinction. Because in circumcision in the New Testament is different than the old. In the old it was an outward sign, in the New Testament it's an inward sign. It's a circumcision of the heart that begins to get told in Deuteronomy. That an inward circumcision is a sign of the reality of trusting Jesus Christ unto salvation. And so Paul is using this to distinguish them from those who don't know him rightly. From those who might claim his name. From those who might claim his favor. And yet who don't know him at all. And friends, that's pervasive in our culture. Watch out when people say Christians do this. Ask them to define Christianity. Things are being done in the name of our faith, not by people who believe Jesus or who've trusted him or who call his word authoritative. Watch out for those kind of folks because Paul has created this distinction. We are the circumcision and then he defines it for you. So if you want to know more thoroughly what it looks like, he continues on and says, We who worship by the Spirit of God. Paul starts to make these dividers to build out this distinction. That we who worship by the Spirit of God, note, he doesn't say that we who follow all the rules, we who've checked the boxes, we who know all the right motions, We who figured out church just enough to know that I raise my hand during this song, I keep my hands in my pocket during this season, I sit here, I kneel here. We can figure church out quickly. And Paul's articulating against that. It's not about just going through the motions. It's about true and right worship, relying on the Holy Spirit and worshiping the true living God. And he doesn't stop there. We who worship by the Spirit of God, and he gives us a second definer, and glory in Christ Jesus, we glory in Jesus. Meaning that Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our value. Jesus is our significance. Jesus is our confidence. And it's in him that we put all of those things. And more specifically, it's not in me. Everything about this world will tell you to glory in you. Do it your way. Pick it your way. Do what you want. As if you are the glory. As if it's all about you. Paul defines this Christianity as those who worship rightly and those whose glory is in Jesus. It's not about my work. It's not about my accomplishments. It's not about whether or not my good will outweigh my bad. It's been a long time this week in a McDonald's arguing with an 80-year-old man who just wanted to tell me about all the good things he'd done. 
and he'd kept the Ten Commandments. And it's interesting if so you get in that conversation with somebody, open up the Ten Commandments. Like have a practical conversation about that. Brother, do you covet? Well, I don't know what that means. You follow all of these things and you don't know what coveting means. Have you, do you struggle with lust? Well, of course I struggle with lust. You covet. Our glory is in Jesus Christ. And finally, Paul says, having worshipped rightly, having articulated that our glory is Jesus, we put no confidence in the flesh. And as Paul lays out these distinctions for true believers, he says we worship the one true God as opposed to just going through the motions. That our glory is Jesus and not in us or our works or accomplishments. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Did you hear that? Zero. Zip. Nil. Nada. I'm running out of language skills. We put no confidence in the flesh. And this is where I poke you in the eye. Please accept your poking. Do you take confidence in your flesh? Or rather, more clearly, is your confidence, your value, your significance, your identity, who you are, how you determine you? Is it based on your job? Is it based on your trophy? Your trophies. Is it based on your relationship status, your waistline, your kids, your grandkids? Is it based on a medical diagnosis or a lack of a medical diagnosis? What makes you significant? Paul seems to think this is a huge issue for Christians. Because as he walked through worship, he ended the conversation. As he walked into glory, he ended the conversation. When he gets into no confidence in the flesh, you know what he doesn't do? End the conversation. Because this is an issue for you and for me. It's a huge issue. I met with a guy a couple weeks ago. He was asking me about the struggles of being a pastor. I said, you know, one of the biggest things I've recognized is I just struggle with the idolatry of being liked. I want so badly to be liked. I had to meet with somebody a while back, and they wanted to talk to me about a couple of things, and they pointed out a couple of things to me I was wrong about, and then they pointed out something, and they were very bold about this. And here's the funny thing. They were wrong. But I found myself wanting to acquiesce to them because I wanted to be liked so much. I didn't want to tell somebody they were wrong. I wanted to be like, oh, let's soften it up. Yeah, there's room for that. Because I wanted him to like me so badly. Why? Because my identity sometimes is whether or not you like me. And kids, that's sin. That's me sinning. Wanting you to like me. So I've had to walk through this whole process in my own life of going, why, Lord? Why is it that I want people to like me? Why is it that I want my wife to like me so much? Why do I want my kids to like me so much? Why is it that my two-year-old, when I want to leave to go to work, and, she's, and I said, Claire, give me a kiss, and she said, no. 
Why does that shatter me for about 30 minutes? And it shouldn't. She's two. Because for me, I got identity struggles. And I'm not the only one here. Paul digs in on this more. Says in verse 4, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. So Paul says to these Judaizers, these people who have these lists of accomplishments, these people who've figured out that if you measure people on these things, Paul leans in on that a little bit. It says, if you have reasons to boast, I've got better ones. He adopts their rules, their scorekeeping. And the fascinating thing about this to me, the longer I worked through this, the more it seems that Paul works through this list pretty fast. And he does it in a couple places in Scripture. And the interesting thing about that is you get the idea that before Paul comes to know Jesus, he used this list pretty effectively. You want to know why I'm awesome? Let me tell you. You want to know why I'm better than you? Let me tell you. So here's Paul's list. Paul starts to give you his spiritual resume. I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. What Paul says is, if being Jewish is your thing, I'm way more Jewish than you. Paul says, you could not possibly be more pure from me. I come, I've got the bloodline, I've got the lineage, I come from the tribe of Benjamin, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, which means something in that culture, it means he's nailing it. It means his parents raised him to the strictest Jewish standards that existed. This guy could follow rules better than anyone you've met. Paul boasts about it. He says it doesn't just stop here. It's not just about what my last name is, who my dad was, and where I've come from. Paul says, continues on, as to the law of Pharisee. So let's pause for a moment and consider Pharisees. Because when you and I hear the idea of Pharisee, we think it's a bad thing. In this culture and in this day, to be a Pharisee was an extraordinarily good one, if you were in the group. Because to be Jewish and to be called a Pharisee means you are as orthodox as it could get. You followed the word. You followed the letter of the law. You kept all of the rules. And he continues, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. Paul says to these Judaizers, these men who are persecuting the church, are you passionate? Do you think you got passion on me? In fact, I way outpassioned you in this. I put people in jail for loving Jesus. I killed people for loving Jesus. You think you can persecute the church? And Paul continues, as to righteousness Under the law, blameless. Paul could follow even the letter of the law. He gives his stack of accomplishments to this group of people who ought to then reason really quickly, he's way better than they are. This is the epic list. This is the, it's like saying Superman's your dad when you're in elementary school. You just win the argument. 
So what does Paul say next? Whatever gain I had, in verse 7, whatever gain I had, every little bit of it, every, whatever gain I had, however any of that profited to me, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Every time he justified himself, every time he proved his worth, every time he proved his value, every time he proved his significance, every time he laid out his accomplishments, all that he had done in the flesh, Paul says all of it is worthless. It's worthless. And he continues, verse 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss, as a waste, as that which should be thrown away because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Paul says, when I look at all of these things, all that I'd find my value and everything I found my significance all, I consider all of it a loss and I count it as rubbish. You know what rubbish is? Jack's laughing over here because Jack knows Greek. This word rubbish is a term that means scubalon. Now, I actually can't tell you what that word rightly means in English, but the best English translation that I could give you would be a large pile of manure. Paul chooses this crass term pretty intentionally in the Bible. And for some of you, you might struggle in that, but it's kind of it's true if you get into it exegetically. Paul says, everything I found my value in outside Jesus was a pile of manure. It was worthless. It was insignificant. It ought to be thrown away, burned, in order that I may find, I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, a righteousness that comes from keeping rules, not having a righteousness that comes from doing it the right way, not having a righteousness that comes from fill in the blank. Whatever you seek and find your own significance and value in outside of Jesus. But that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I might know him, and the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And what Paul puts out before you, Paul, this guy who came from the right family, we miss the reality that when Paul becomes a Christian, inevitably his parents were pretty ticked about that. Paul probably rightly could have become the next high priest. He's got the lineage for it. And yet he says, everything I sought for, everything I laid my life upon, everything that I thought declared my value and worth, it's trash compared to knowing Jesus. It's just trash. 
Because Christ had become everything to him. Christ had become the thing that defined him. Paul says it clearly. Every time he tried to define himself by the world, every time he sought his significance or value, it was worthless. I've tossed it all aside, he says, that I might know Jesus, I might be found in Jesus, and I might have my worth declared by Jesus. See, it's in this moment we have to ask ourselves, where is our righteousness when we try to declare it? Is it in what I ascribe or what good works I think I can do? Is it in what I think I can accomplish? It is in some list that I keep scoring my own mind in such a way that I can win. Because I want to have people around me that I beat. So as long as I write a list that's got values in it that I'm really good at it, I can beat you. And we miss the fact that that's not Christian. We miss the fact that that mocks Jesus. See, he agreed with me back there. You hear the kids say, yes. The only thing of value, significance, importance, according to Paul, is Jesus. So practically, what does that look like for you and me? I'm going to borrow some words from Rick Warren and tell you this. It means that you're called to abandon any image of yourself that's not from God. It means that you're stopped accepting what others have said about you. How others have labeled you. How others have defined you. And you start believing what God has said about you. How God has labeled you. How God has defined you. And he says, I'm very pleased with how I made you. I'm very pleased that I created you. And because you were made in my image, you have inherent dignity and worth. And because God the Father sent God the Son to die on a cross for you, God says of you, I purchased you with the blood of my Son, and you have infinite value. And friends, this is what defines us as believers. We can no longer be defined by our experiences. We cannot be defined by our feelings. We cannot be defined by the opinions of others or by our circumstances. We cannot be defined by our successes, by our failures. And we can certainly not be defined by the sins we've committed in the past or the sins that we're avoiding. You're not defined by the car you drive, the money you make, the jeans you wear, the phone you use, or the house you live in. You are defined by God's creation of you and his son's atoning death on your behalf. And he has declared that you are his. Church, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, if you've trusted him unto salvation, then your identity, your value, your worth is secure. Don't go looking for it anymore. 
Don't go boast about it in anything else. What we have is Jesus. And when we don't buy that, it's a snake slithering up and telling us something different. And it's a lie. It's a lie. And this is so significant for us because the more we drink deep this truth, the more we lean into its understanding, the more we understand this is a great picture of truth in the scriptures, the more we don't sell ourselves in the world's eyes. The more we don't look for other things to define us or to declare our value. So that when you stand before somebody and somebody asks you, why are you significant? Why do you have worth? Why do you have value? Our answer is not, well, you know, I'm leading sales on our team right now. It's not because I've, I keep all the rules. I do things the right way. I helped an old lady across the street yesterday. Our significance and our value is in Jesus Christ. Everything else is a waste. And the more we lean into this, the more we understand its reality, the more and more we'll see his sufficiency. And we'll be aware of the fruitless reality of attempting to be defined by anything else. See, this becomes a poke in the eye to us because this is, this is our issue. Any of the other things we bring up where we lay out truth, you may or may not struggle with. But this is where we're all at. And Jesus tells you, you're secure. You're paid for. You are mine. And as I close, I need to give you a little bit of a heads up on next week. Next week, we're going to play PG-13. I tell you that ahead of time because I want you to know. We're going to step into a biblical view of sexuality. And as such, I just want you to know ahead of time, this is my like signal to you, uh, we're going to have an, some expanded kids club options for kids of any age. If that's something you don't want your kids to be involved in, that's perfectly fine with me. There'll be options for them to be involved. But please hear me say this. Don't be negligent in teaching your kids about sexuality. Because I promise you this much, the world won't be. So if you want to get ahead on this, and you haven't talked to your kids about sex, do it this week. And then bring them. It'll give you some great conversations. And if you're a kid and you heard the word sex in church, it's an okay word. Ask mom and dad about it later. Put them on the spot. Make it awkward. It'd be one of your favorite memories. And if you're an adult, we don't need your help, so you have to stay next week. But just so you know, I'll give the same reminder in the announcements next week, uh, just to remind other folks that that will be happening. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, I know as we've walked into this, God, that you created us with a purpose, and yet Satan always tries to lie to us. He's always at work. He says in Second Peter, Father, he, he roams around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. 
And Father, when we don't understand that our identity is secure in you, we make ourselves a pretty easy prey. Father, may we not be defined by anything in the world's terms. May we be defined by your son's death and by his resurrection and the fact that he's coming back for us and that we'll spend forever with him because we belong to you. Thank you, God, that you have claimed us, that you are God and that we can be your people. Father, I just want to pray for those of us who are struggling in identity issues. Father, you'd walk gently with us, that you'd walk kindly with us, and that you'd always bring us back to the cross to know how thoroughly we're loved by you. It's in Jesus' sweet name we pray. Amen.